Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am really beside myself. I'm so excited because it is time for one of my very favorite recurring episodes on Beyond Politics and also in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed, where I get to step way, way beyond politics. Let's face it, the news and particularly the political news is such a bummer so much of the time. And it's just, it's just, it's my dessert to step outside that and think about things that are truly of cosmic importance. I'm talking about our recurring return to the subject of space, astronomy, what's going on in the wider universe outside our day-to-day problems here on earth in the U.S., There's no one better to have this conversation with than the Sky Guy, our recurring guest, John Gianforti, who's an astronomer. He's the director of the University of New Hampshire Observatory. He's an astronomy instructor at UNH. He's a science writer. He's an adjunct faculty member at Granite State College. And his superpower is the confluence between being a practitioner of astronomy and being a great, great explainer of everything going on in space to the broader public. John, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thank you, Matt. It's a a pleasure to be here and to have such great conversations on some topics that are really important and really very much in the news. And and that's why I always say yes to doing an astronomy program with you, because the topics that uh, you suggest are always right up there, not only in the news, but also important, important for us to know about. I I agree. They're important for us to know about, and they're also they're sort of a cognitive balm for our brains. Their galaxy brain is a thing. And being able to think about the larger universe and and deeper questions about where we are and why we exist, it's just, for me, it's, it's fascinating, it's exciting, but it's calming at the same time. Let's get right into some of the most exciting news going on in astronomy and in science, which is the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, when we last spoke, it was right before Christmas, And our Christmas wish was that the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope would go well. That's all we were asking for for Christmas was just a successful, safe launch. Well, it went great. And I wanted to check back in with you on how things have been going since then. I'd like to say that things are really heating up, but they're actually really cooling down. So so what's been going on and and how excited are you? Well, that's that's exactly where we left off on our last program. And the, the and and I, I tell you the truth, I was I was I was worried because so many things had to go right in order for us to eventually be able to use the telescope. And the launch went spectacularly. The telescope had to travel a great distance to a point. It's not orbiting the uh, Earth like the Hubble Space Telescope is, where it's only a couple of hundred miles above the Earth, and the space shuttle visited the Hubble Space Telescope about five times to make repairs and upgrades. We can't do that with the James Webb Telescope. It's uh, more than a million miles away from Earth. So, I mean, there's, you can't call, you know, the repair guy and have him come up and change out a few mirrors or electronic printed circuit boards. And that all went very well. It got to the Lagrange point in its, in, in its travels, which is a very stable place in space for a, for a telescope to be, which is exactly where you want a big telescope like the James Webb, which is much, much larger than, than Hubble. And it got there on schedule. And then the 
the huge task of unfolding the telescope because a, a big, huge 6.5 meter telescope had to fit inside a, a pretty small spacecraft, right? It was it, so it, the, all the mirrors assemblies had to be folded upon each other so that it would actually fit in the spacecraft, which it. it the unfolding process uh, and that took a, a couple of weeks went very, very well, no hitches. And then the task of aligning the 18 hexagonal mirrors in the James Webb telescope, because it's not a monolithic mirror. Like if you think of a telescope, you think, oh yeah, it has a mirror and maybe maybe two mirror, primary and the secondary, but the primary is all one solid piece of glass. And many earth-based, uh, telescopes are like that one big mirror, but it's actually less expensive to build smaller mirrors, not that the James Webb mirrors are small, but it's actually smaller, uh, less expensive to, to build smaller ones and arrange them in such a way where they act as one. And you, you do that by placing sensors and actuators underneath the mirrors so you can tilt them so optically they simulate a, a mirror with the combined surface area of all 18 of the James Webb telescope mirrors. And right now they're going through the alignment process on those mirrors because they have to be all pointed in, in the same direction. So you get a nice stable image. We had a preliminary image of a star back a few weeks ago, NASA threw us a bone and showed us an image of a star and it was a pinpoint image of, of, of the star. So we knew that the alignment process was, was going well. It has advanced beyond that. And now, as you mentioned, Matt, the telescope has to be cooled to 120 Kelvin. That's 120 Celsius degrees um, above absolute zero. And that takes a long time. The telescope is still cooling down. But one, once that's finished, then they can make the final adjustments on the alignment of the mirrors. They're all roughly aligned now, but the final alignment can only be done when it gets down to temperature because uh, when things change temperature, they actually change their dimension. They actually get smaller when things cool down. And that all has to be finally adjusted, and, and, but that's going along very well. And everyone's, everyone at NASA is extremely happy about the progress. And uh, they even have their uh, first target star ready to 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 image it, it happens to be a star just below naked eye visibility just just a little bit dimmer than what you can see with the unaided eye it's near the bowl of the big dipper so they already have the star picked out and that'll be the first uh the first pointing of the hubble for scientific purposes will be at that star well it's so exciting and I really get the sense that the public is is kind of catching on to the idea that there's something big. Look, this has even penetrated the brain of my eight and a half year old son, who's really excited, probably listening to this episode right now and looking forward to all the science we're about to start getting back from this incredible new scientific instrument. But it's not like scientists have actually just been kind of sitting back and 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 waiting for this new instrument. They, they're continuing to do a lot of great work with the tools that they have at their disposal. And so we're, we're, we're really, we're, we're right following on some, some really incredible discoveries just in the, in the last few weeks that sort of set the stage for what more we're going to get out of the James Webb. And I wanted to run a few of them by you. One is that the most distant galaxy 
on record has been spotted by an international team of astronomers. It's 13.5 billion light years away, which also means that the image that they've captured is 13.5 billion years old. What did you make of this discovery? Well, it, it's the, the most significant thing about that to me is according to our according to the present understanding and our present scientific thoughts about how the universe formed is a theory that most everyone's heard of called the Big Bang. And the Big Bang is supported by some pillars of observational evidence that scientists in, in the last century and in this century have, have made through observation and, 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 and now computer simulation verifies some of these thoughts. So the Big Bang is not just some kind of fancy idea that some astronomer had. It's well supported by observational evidence and from many different perspectives. And that theory states, at least today, that the universe started about 13.82 billion years ago, okay? That was the beginning. And don't ask me any questions about what happened before that because it would just be speculation. But this is the, this is the thing that strikes me most about this most distant galaxy. That means there was a very short period of time between the Big Bang and when the first galaxies actually formed. And that is, it, that's, we're only talking a, a couple hundred million years. Now, I, I know that that's a long time for people, right? Because we live a hundred years if we're lucky. But that's an amazingly short period of time between the, the start of the universe and when the first galaxies started to form. That a lot of stuff had to happen in order for, for that to happen. And the fact that we can look that far back and see infant galaxies is astounding to me. And we know then those galaxies that we see at those very early epochs in time look nothing like the galaxies that you think of when you hear the word galaxy. So the galaxies, if you imagine a beautiful Hubble Space Telescope picture of a beautiful spiral galaxy, the early galaxies look nothing like that. They look like fuzzy blobs of gas and dust. That, that's all. But those were the first images of galaxies in that era, only a few hundred million years after the birth of the universe. So if we compare the, the oldest, the the most distant galaxy, as you mentioned, with the beginning of the universe, 13.82 billion years, that's not much time for all that had to happen for those first galaxies to start to congeal under gravity, to start to form that eventually evolved into the galaxies that are in our local neighborhood that are fully developed and evolved into these beautiful spiral structures or these beautiful, huge, massive elliptical galaxies. And that is a huge confirmation that the thinking that brought the Big Bang to the forefront of, of you know, astrophysics and astronomy. Well, speaking of all the things that had to happen, there are two intriguing possibilities that the astronomers who announced 
this finding of the oldest imaged galaxy ever brought to bear about what might be going on in this image. And both of them kind of relate to the point you were just raising that boy, awful lot had to happen in what sounds like a long time, but on cosmic scale, it's really not like a few hundred million years. One possibility is that this old galaxy, this, this infant galaxy was producing stars at an incredible rate that all of this gas and dust was coalescing into these early stars, stars that, and we'll talk about this in a moment, a type of star that we've never been able to directly observe that's very different than the kinds of stars that we see today. That's one possibility. And that all of that happened in that very condensed time frame. The other possibility is that there's a super massive black hole at the center of this, which also raises the question of how on earth did we end up with a super massive black hole that quickly after the creation of the universe? Do either of these possibilities stand out to you as more interesting, more intriguing as an astronomer? Well, we... we... The, the super so there's let me just try to explain two things there are generally i hope there's no uh, black hole scientists listening to this because i'm not a black hole expert but there's two basic families of black holes when massive stars exhaust their fuel an end point for them is to collapse so there's no in a star there's a huge release of energy from fusion that takes place deep inside the star where it's really hot really dense and that gas that's released from that fusion process tries to blow the star up. It's pushing outward with tremendous constant force. It's like you're baking uh, like a souffle and there's that pressure that's kind of keeping it inflated. Exactly. So I always use the analogy in my classes of Jiffy Pop, right? So you have this popcorn popping inside, hitting the aluminum and making it grow bigger, bigger. So that's the gas pressure generated from the fusion reactions in the core of the star, trying to expand the star. But then you have the mass of the star. When, where there is mass in the universe, we have something called gravity. And gravity does just the opposite. It tries to condense the star into a point of infinite density at the center. And the balance between those two forces is, is this hydrostatic equilibrium that keeps a star in a constant shape at a constant color, a constant energy production rate, right? And there's some internal mechanisms in stars that want to keep it that way. But something happens and the stars will go along happily and, and keep its shape and size and color and temperature and exist for a long time until it runs out of fuel. When it runs out of fuel, gravity says, aha, there's not so much gas pressure pushing out. I'm going to start the initial contraction again. And that leads in, in very massive stars, massive, like more than five or six times the mass of the sun, the end point for those objects is to become a black hole. And so that's a stellar mass black hole. They're, they're smaller, less massive than the kind that you mentioned. About 20 or 30 years ago, we started identifying very massive invisible objects at the center of massive galaxies. S speed forward 20 years, 15 years. Now we know that most galaxies have these supermassive black holes, not to be confused by stellar mass black holes at their centers. Well, now, now we have a tool that we've, we've never really been able to explain 
satisfactorily how galaxies formed. But now with the discovery of these supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies, it's quite possible that this, these supermassive black holes were an agent, a help, an aid to the formation, the bringing together of some of this ancient dust and gas into the form of a galaxy. And, and once that process starts, um, galaxies go ahead and, and evolve and collect more material from their environment and become these huge massive structures, either large elliptical galaxies or large spiral galaxies like, like our Milky Way. So the, 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 the discovery is, is, is huge, right? It, 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 it now places importance on these black holes. And what's even more, what, what will really, the Big Bang has been tested thoroughly for a hundred years. And these pillars that support it as the best explanation of how the universe started make uh, a prediction that we've, that we've seen. It says that Big Bang Theory predicts that when the universe formed, predominantly the only two atoms that would have been formed by the process that took place after the Big Bang are hydrogen and helium. Those are the simplest atoms we know of, right? The hydrogen atom has only one proton in the nucleus and one electron in the electron cloud. So it's element number one. Right, it's really simple. Element number two is helium. It's the next simplest atom. So the Big Bang predicts that the universe will be 99.9% hydrogen and helium. So the first stars that formed in the first galaxies should be, according to the Big Bang and its, its family of, of nested hypotheses, predict that these very massive stars that formed early, early in the universe should only have hydrogen and helium in them and nothing else. And th that's your population three stars that I know you want to talk about. Yes, I actually, I do want to get into that because I was actually watching a PBS thing. I'm a nerd. I was watching a PBS thing about this on Nova. And I was astounded to learn that these early stars were gigantic. They were blue. And they're not at all like the kinds of stars that we see around us. They, they kind of live their lives like James Dean. They, it was just all like reckless expenditure of energy, and then they were gone. Scientists believe that they've actually seen one. They, they've established an extraordinary new benchmark using the Hubble Space Telescope, which goes to show that older models of technology and older people can still accomplish things. Good, good <laughs> to keep in mind for those of us of a certain vintage. Thanks, Matt. And, yeah, well, I, I, I was mostly speaking of myself. You, you're <laughs> extremely youthful. Scientists have detected the light of a star that existed within the first billion years of the universe's birth. It's the farthest individual star ever seen to date. They're calling it Arendelle, which means morning star in Old English, although fans of Lord of the Rings might recognize that as well because Tolkien borrowed extensively from Old English and coming up with the names of things. It's This star is at least 50 times the mass of our sun, exactly what, John, you were just describing. These stars, these early stars were big. They were spendthrift with their energy. They may have been different colors. So what stood out to you about this? You were just beginning to explain the nature of these early stars, and now we may have seen one of these population three stars for the first time. 
Well, let me let me define the the word population. Astronomers we we classify stars uh, into groups. We love doing that, and there's a lot of different like all stars are different. Like people, all different people are all different, right? There's not two people that are exactly the same, and the same is true for stars. They have a lot of similar characteristics. You know, they have a mass, they have a a size, they have a temperature. They they so we classify them. So stars in the, theoretically, stars in the early universe could only, as far, according to the Big Bang, could only be formed from the available material, right? The stuff to build stars in the early universe, theoretically, was hydrogen and helium, with only a small smattering of, of beryllium, maybe, and just, but, but mostly hydrogen and helium, 99.9% hydrogen and helium, when, when, the universe forged those two chemical elements while it was expanding and cooling. And, and so stars that are the very first stars should only be composed of hydrogen and helium. And we, we know, and, and we, we classify those stars as population three. Population one stars are stars like the sun. They happen to have a lot of impurities in them. Star, population two stars are also found in galaxies, but in a different part of the galaxy. And there, they have very few components other than hydrogen and helium. The population three stars are purely theoretical. We've never observed one before. And this first, this new star, this 12.9 billion year old star that the Hubble Space Telescope has, has seen and, and discovered, should be, being so old and so close to the Big Bang, should only be composed of those two chemical elements. We shouldn't find anything else in there. Now, the image that the Hubble took wasn't good enough to analyze the composition of that star. It was just too faint, too small, not enough, not enough photons of light to determine its composition, right? The Hubble telescope, it, it's not, not a huge telescope but it, it, it has advantages other than size being above the atmosphere. But it's not, it doesn't have nearly as much light gathering capability as a lo very large telescope like the James Webb telescope or, or other earthbound telescopes. So we use a process called spectroscopy to determine lots of things about distant celestial objects. One of them is their composition. We can actually tell what something is made out of at great distances just by studying the light and analyzing it spectroscopically, if you will, that it will tell us its, its composition. But the image, the light has to be, you have to have enough light to make that analysis. And the Hubble just couldn't do that. But the James Webb telescope being like three times larger than the Hubble Space Telescope and with diff some different and advanced capabilities, because it was just launched, right? And Hubble was launched in 1990 to determine the composition of objects this far away. So it's hoped that this will be a great test of the Big Bang Theory to see if early stars like the one just detected, just discovered, are truly only made of hydrogen and helium. That's the hugely awaited observation that that the James Webb Telescope 
will hopefully make in the not too distant future. I mean, if, if, if that holds through, if, if they do a, a spectral analysis of this star and others that are of similar age, and it turns out that the only thing they can see is hydrogen and helium, while with a feather in the cap of theoretical astrophysics, right? So, hey, we're on to something. The, it, the Big Bang isn't just in our mind, even though it's well supported by other, other, uh, other legs. So that, that would be a huge show of support for the rationale behind the, the one of the supporting pillars of the Big Bang. Well, two things I wanted to pick up on in that. First of all, one of the implications of what you're saying about in the early universe, according to theory, all we would have had is two elements hydrogen and helium. And if our listeners can cast their minds back to looking at the periodic table, there are way more elements on there than just two. And one of the things that Carl Sagan was fond of saying is that when you look around you, everything you see was forged in the heart of a star or in the course of a supernova explosion. We are literally stardust. Why do we know that? Because we're not just made of hydrogen and helium, and all of those heavier elements are coming from the nuclear processes that happen inside stars or in the course of the explosion of a star, which I started the show by saying, I like this topic because it takes me outside the mundane day-to-day -day of politics, which is what we usually focus on. So if anything can take you outside of that really narrow view of what's in front of you, it's the idea that everything you see as you look around you literally came at some point from a star. Mind-blowing. The other thing, I just can't help myself. I, I do want to move on to another topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is exoplanets. But I just want to quickly pick up on one other thing you said, which is feather in the cap for theoretical astrophysics. By the way, if you had that specific phrase on your bingo card for this show, then you win. <laughs> There's another feather in the cap for theoretical astrophysics embedded in this story of imaging the oldest star yet seen, 12.9 billion light years away or 12.9 billion years old, which is that, as you alluded to, the Hubble isn't like a superpowered telescope. In order to be able to see something that far away and that faint, astronomers had to make use of a phenomenon known as gravitational lensing, which is something predicted by Einstein's general theory of relativity. And I don't I don't think we have time to explain everything that Einstein figured out and all the theoretical physics, but I, I thought maybe we could just very quickly touch on this because again, it's, it's another of these mind blowing things about the kinds of science that we're doing here in, in astronomy, making use of gravitational lensing. So quickly, what is that? And, and why is that so exciting? It's, it's, it's very exciting, a little scary. And it's basically, I'll say that it's cheating. Einstein predicted that he revolutionized how we think about gravity, right? And I, and I, I won't be silly and try to go into that in the limited time that we have. But gravity doesn't work the way you think it does. But I won't go into that, as I mentioned. But Einstein predicted that gravity should affect the path that light travels through the universe. And in 1919, there were several teams that traveled to different places on the earth to take some photographs 
during a total solar eclipse. And the thought was that during a total solar eclipse, when the moon covers the sun, it, it gets dark or it gets pretty dark even in the middle of the day. If the eclipse happened at high noon and, and in the middle of the eclipse when the moon was completely covering the sun, it would be dark enough for you to see some bright stars and planets in the sky. That's how dark it gets. So if you've ever seen a total solar eclipse, that's true. So the thought was, listen, we're gonna take pictures. We know exactly where in the sky the sun is during the eclipse, right? We can figure that out mathematically, right? So we know where the sun is. So we're gonna take pictures of the immediately around the sun during the eclipse that show some, some stars that we can identify. And we're gonna compare where those stars are in the sky compared to the sun before and and bef before the eclipse and after right after the eclipse and those stars positioned if einstein was right those stars position because the light from those distant stars is going to be affected by the gravity of the sun they should be sort of askew they should be in a slightly different place in the sky than they really are due to the sun's gravity. And then when the sun moves away from that part of the sky, the light from those stars aren't gonna be affected anymore. They're gonna come right straight through because light travels in straight lines unless you deflect it some way. So come to find out after that eclipse, over, literally overnight, the observations made of those star positions compared to where they should have been confirmed exactly to the predictions that Einstein made. So light or the light little pieces of light energy called we call photons, they have, they are affected by gravity. So gravity can actually alter the course of a photon traveling through space, light traveling through space. So gravitational lensing occurs when a very, very distant object's light like a galaxy or, or even a, an individual star, passing through a very massive object like a galaxy cluster, the light from the more distant object that's behind the galaxy cluster will be altered, almost focused like an optical lens. You can imagine a lens in the way this, this immense massive galaxy cluster has such strong gravity that's it's bending the light rays from the object, whether it's a star or a galaxy behind it. And it focuses it and greatly um, magnifies and alters its light. So in the case of this most recent, very distant star, 12.9 billion uh, light year away star, its galaxy that contained it, its light was lensed or focused by this intermediate galaxy cluster that has a lot of mass. That amplified the light of the galaxy that contained Arendelle and made that individual star visible where it had no business being that bright. And it was this gravitational lensing concept that, that brought about our ability or the Hubble's ability to capture it. So I, gravitational I, lensing is, is is, is real. The universe is even stranger than I think we, we conceive it to be in our, our wildest science fiction. And it's, it, it's really, I just, that whole explanation is just, if it's not 
mind blowing for you. Just go back and listen to it again on podcast because it really is astounding. Kids, I just, I hope you take away from this that gravity isn't just a good idea. It's the law. We've got to move on. Let's move a little closer and, but not much closer and a little smaller, but not much smaller to exoplanets, planets orbiting distant stars, not the planets around our own star, the sun. In March, the NASA Exoplanet Archive logged the 5,000th confirmed planet outside of our solar system. This is a huge advance. Over the last 30 years, since the very first discovery of a planet circling something else, it was a pulsar in this case, something else other than our own sun, we have logged 5,000 finds of planets elsewhere in the universe. It's it's sort of mind-blowing for me, but I don't even do this. This is actually... A, a bit of your area of particular expertise. You do some of this work yourself, John. What stood out to you about passing this milestone? Well, it's just a lot, a lot. I mean, considering that in 1990, when when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, we're talking about the Hubble Space Telescope, we, we weren't sure if there were any planets beyond those in our solar system. I, I know science fiction authors and movie makers knew for a long time before that, that there were other planets and probably aliens out there. But science didn't know that really until 1992, right? As you mentioned. And since 1995, we didn't know of any planets orbiting a star that's similar to the sun, which was revealed in November of 1995. But since then, we started counting how many extrasolar planets or exoplanets there are. And the March this year milestone of 5,000 was just a big number of other planets that we know are there. Not just, well, we think there are 5,000. There are 10,000 that we think are there that the 5,000 of those haven't been yet confirmed. And it's a pretty tedious process to confirm an exoplanet. You just don't say, yeah, I think there's a star planet around that star, I think. So we'll count that one. That's a candidate until it's confirmed. But to, to, to get to the point where there are actually 5,000 exoplanets that we know of in, 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 in more than 3,000 other solar systems, that's what that means. There are 3,000 other planetary systems that we know about in, in our neck of the woods, in our part of the galaxy, and that, that's only the ones we know about, right? So I mean, it's a fairly, if, if, you, if you were born before, if you were born after 1995, then you've only lived in a world where we knew there were other planets. But your parents or your parents' parents who were born before the 1990s, we, we, we lived in a world where, hey, there's only nine planets or eight planets, depending on if you count Pluto. But there's a heck of a lot more than that. And all of these other systems, all these other planets, there's not one other solar system that's just like ours. There's it's, no other solar system that has four little rocky planets close to the, their central star and four gas giant planets out beyond it. There's no other system that's just like that, which means nature is very, very inventive and creative and has all different kinds <clears throat> of planetary formation te techniques and outcomes, and it depends on those initial conditions that, that determine what a planetary system looks like. And, and the, the systems that we know that have planets in them, we may have, yeah, we know there's 
several of them that have seven or eight planets, but none of them, you know, we're still finding additional planets in those systems as our techniques better. And James Webb will only add to the collection. And there's another mission currently in orbit, the, the TESS, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. There's the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope and the aerial mission in addition to the James Webb. So there's the prospect that in the coming years, we could add thousands, if not tens of thousands of additional finds to this registry. Is this, is this search, which you yourself engage in, is it largely about the pure science of trying to understand all of that universal variation in nature of how planetary systems might form? Is, is that largely what it's about for you? Or is this ultimately largely about the context of life in the universe and yeah. whether we're alone and kind of the, the whole way we view ourselves and our place in the universe? It, it's, it's both, it's, it, but it's not just the science, although that's enormously stimulating and interesting, but it's the quest to answer the ultimate question that almost all of science contemplates and strives for is that are we alone in the universe is there another is there another place in the universe that has life and is there another place in the universe that has intelligent life those are kind of different phrasing the question differently right i mean so is there life elsewhere and is there intelligent life something that we could foreseeably communicate with at some point in the future that's that's the emotional, philosophical driving force behind the science, right? And it drives us to develop all these new techniques, different kinds of imaging systems, different kinds of telescopes, different kinds of techniques to observe these really hard to see exoplanets. So it's, it's more than the science, although that would be enough for a lot of people. It's, it's gosh, is, is there a possibility of us being able to communicate with another um, civilization somewhere else in the universe, and what what might that be like? That's the the huge driver behind the science, I would say. If, as listeners, if you can hear the excitement in John's voice, that's the same excitement I feel, and that's where you get to kind of as you as you progress in in a career in science and astronomy. But for many of us, it starts early on with looking up at things that are really astounding in the night sky. So I want to finish with two very quick hits. One is there is a lunar eclipse. This is the kind of thing that gets kids inspired early on about astronomy and science. There, there's a good one coming up in May. Do you want to just quickly give us the, the details on this? Although it doesn't seem like the, the kind of thing we're on the East Coast anyway, kids are really going to be up to look for it. Well, they, they, should, they should ask their parents and parents should think about this. I know it's disruptive to sleep cycles, but things in astronomy are like that sometimes. And if you ask an astronomer nowadays what triggered them into pursuing a career in science, maybe not even just astronomy, it was somebody showing them Saturn or looking at a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse, something that really captured their focus from and, and, and got them thinking about something other than the things that they do day to day. And on the evening of the 15th of May, 
not, not, not even, well, about, about a month from now, the 15th of May into the 16th, it's late at night, there is a total lunar eclipse that we'll see here on the East Coast and, and much of the country we'll see. And that's, that's a, a wonderful, beautiful transformation of a bright white full moon transforming into something very different in color and in texture. And it goes from something that looks 2D to something that actually looks three-dimensional when you look up at it into the sky. And this eclipse starts about 9.30 on Sunday night, uh, the 15th, and reaches its maximum eclipse after midnight. And there's, 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 it's, lunar eclipses are perfectly safe to view. You, you don't need any, any special glasses. You don't have to worry about hurting your eyes because it's the moon. And the moon will change from a beautiful white full moon to a orange or maybe even an orangish red shaded moon that when it gets that shade to it, it, it almost looks like sitting in the sky three dimensional, which is so weird and beautiful and, and quite photogenic. You could take a picture of this event with your cell phone camera and be, and be happy with what you have. Wow. So it's it's a it's a great event and yeah it's an, it's late at night but it's something that you and your children will not forget especially if you view it together and can snap a couple of pictures with your cell phone. Something really to look forward to and because I I'm I'm hoping that my own kids made it to the end of this podcast because yes if you ask me I will give you permission just just don't tell mom. We're going to stay up kind of late that night. All right. I wanted to hit the story about satellites and light pollution and et cetera. We'll, we'll, we'll have to save that for another time. Unfortunately, that's going to be an ongoing story to deal with. We're going to have to wrap it up here. John Gianforti of UNH, thanks so much for a really fascinating discussion. My, my pleasure as always, man. 